quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Good cop, bad cop. World leaders are told it's a minute from midnight on climate change. China cops out. President Xi sends a written statement. The U.S. wants Beijing to do more. And Barclays boss bows out. Jess Daly quits after an investigation into Jeffrey Epstein ties. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Monday. And as I said, the whole theme today is whether we see good cop or bad cop or somewhere in between. Post G20, of course, we were left with copious calls for action and not much else. Let's hope for concrete commitments from Glasgow as G26 opening ceremonies begin. We'll take you there shortly for the latest. Later in the show, too, our exclusive interview with the Oscar-winning actor Matt Damon. He's the co-founder of Water.org, a nonprofit that provides microloans in poorer nations to help families get access to clean water and sanitation. That task will only get harder as climate change accelerates, as Matt will explain later on in the show and will emphasise too when he heads to Glasgow. Before that, we'll hear from the talented Mr. Damon. A look at the global markets where stocks are born to run. Wall Street adding to record gains and we begin the traditionally strong November and December period for financial markets. A positive tone in Europe too, ahead of a major global news week. The Fed could announce the timing of tapering asset purchases as soon as Wednesday. We have a new monthly US jobs report due on Friday as well. And meanwhile, COVID restrictions, credit tightening, energy shortages and supply chain issues, you name it, all still weighing on Chinese growth, factory activity there contracting, in fact, for the second straight month. A different story, though, over in Japan, the Nikkei soaring on new stimulus hopes. No cop out allowed there after the ruling party held on to power in parliamentary elections. A busy Monday. Let's get right to the drivers. It's one minute to midnight in the race to prevent a global catastrophe. That warning from the British Prime Minister and COP26 host as the climate negotiations begin. Let's just recap the mission here. Governments agreed in 2015 it was a crucial step to cap global warming at one and a half degrees Celsius since pre-industrial times. But since then, we haven't figured out how to do that. Current pledges still leave the world on track for a 2.7 degree of warming by 2100, bringing with it cataclysmic flooding, drought and habitat destruction. So this summer needs solid commitments fast to bridge that gap. Max Foster joins us now. Max, the big question is, do we get those solid commitments coming out of the back of these talks? I have to say there is some pessimism, actually, uh, Julia. If you imagine there are nearly 200 countries represented here, 120 world leaders, roughly, they've got to reach some sort of agreement. And they're not talking about creating a new treaty here. They're really just tightening up what was agreed in Paris all those years ago. 
and effectively you've got each country coming up with a pledge towards these targets. And at the moment, we're looking at 2.7%, as you're saying, and that could wipe out coral reefs. Huge amount of concern about that. Trying to get it down to 1.5% is extremely difficult. And so far, the progress just isn't there. They've only got a couple of days uh, to get there. So what you've got are these very powerful speeches opening uh, the world leaders part of the summit here. Just heard from Antonio Guterres talking about us digging our own graves here in the world. You're going to hear Prince Charles talking about us needing to be on a warlike footing. And also you've got Boris Johnson, who's hosting the event, also using very strong words. So what they're saying here is, you know, the promises were made back in Paris, but now is the time for action. And as you say, Julia, it's whether or not we get that action over the next couple of days. And uh, there's some pessimism, it has to be said, but at least there will be some progress, we hope. And at least a lot of discussion too, which we look forward to. And uh, he tweeted, didn't he, Anthony Guterres, the UN Secretary General, I leave Rome, of course, the G20 in Rome, with my hopes unfulfilled, but at least they're not buried for now. Max, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. The big question too is, is COP a flop without China? President Xi will not be attending the climate talks in person, but is due to deliver a written address to the summit today. Earlier, the U.S. called China a, quote, significant outlier in the global push to keep the rise in global temperatures below one and a half degrees Celsius. David Culver joins me now. David, great to have you with us. As we were discussing on Friday, President Xi, of course, not left China since early 2020. So his presence not expected. The question is if he's not there ultimately to join the debate and you haven't got the biggest polluters in the world there, does it make a critical difference to tackling this going forward? It feels like it does. And you're right, they're a huge factor in all of this, and they know that. I mean, they themselves are the biggest polluter in the world, but they also look at the other countries that have been developing far longer than the People's Republic of China, and they say, look, you've been doing it for 150 years, we've been doing it for the past 30 years, we're working on things. Now, as to if anything of really substance can come out of this without the physical presence of President Xi Jinping being in the midst of these uh, in-person meetings, I think you can see some substance coming out of it. In fact, I think we start to see some of these very lofty goals put forward. And you're looking at a country that's got more than 1.4 billion people for them to try to mobilize in this direction is going to take a lot. And we already saw some of the pains and struggles they felt just a few weeks ago when they tried to rein in some of the emissions and they realized, no, we've got massive powder outages as a result. People stuck in elevators, traffic lights going out, folks panicking as winter's cold started to move in. So what did they do? Well, they said domestically, we need to step up the production of of coal and the mining of it. And they did just that. More than 60%, Julia, of this country is powered by coal. They have these goals set forward within the next decade so that they're trying to, by 2030, have reached their peak emissions. By 2060, they're hoping to be carbon neutral. They're also looking at renewables, and and that's a big part of this, because one thing is you look at the rest of the world compared to China, and sure, China ranks quite high when it comes to how much pollution they're putting out into the air, but they're also the number one investor, manufacturer, and developer of these renewables, wind and solar power. And you start to see that play out. And and they're certainly proud of it because they're promoting it even, say, for the upcoming Beijing 2022 Olympics, where they're saying, look, these are going to be the first Olympic Games where the venues are going to be powered 100% by green energy. Still, though, they realize that there's a lot more to do. And so if this written statement is going to come forward with a few more details, that will in of itself be surprising. What we have seen, even experts have echoed this to me, is that you don't often see China come forward with these huge promises Uh, so much as sometimes under-promising 
and then over delivering. That, of course, mm. would be the hope, I mean, for the sake of the entire planet, but it, it remains to be seen just what they're going to come forward with uh, in the next few days as this conference moves forward. The hope is it'll be something of substance and they believe that this is perhaps the one place, Julie, I mean, we've seen so many issues with China and the West that they can actually find cooperation, particularly with the United States. Yeah, and you raised so many good points there, David. Just stay with me for two seconds, because I do believe that Prince Charles is now speaking, sure. of course, opening the COP26 talks today, expected to say we need to be on a warlike footing, to your point, with regards our efforts, be it investment, be it our focus on tackling climate change. And you can see him there talking live and we'll continue to focus on what he's saying. But David, to your point and actually to Prince Charles and this idea that we need to be on a warlike footing, 2060 does not feel ambitious enough for China. And as you said, perhaps the hope here is particularly given the amount of investment and their focus on renewable energies and the fear, I think, the social fear of pollution and people pushing back. And we've seen it. I've certainly experienced it in some of their biggest cities in particular. Perhaps the yeah. effort here will be greater. We will see it before 2060. But at least for now, on paper, they don't look ambitious enough, given the level of pollution that we see from the country and also relative to what other big nations are doing. And we've seen progress on, on that smog point that you're referencing, certainly in Beijing. I mean, even you know, two and a half years ago, you, you noticed it much more than you're seeing it today. Cities like Shanghai, the same situation. But th there's also another element to all of this, Julia, and that is the necessity from a national security point to really secure their energy sources, to make sure that it's as much domestically produced as possible so they don't have their reliance on other countries, for example, Australia, when it comes to the coal. And so that's why you see them stepping up with different alternatives here. But there is the reality that coal is going to keep them powered for many years to come, decades perhaps. If they get off of it anytime soon, that from a national security perspective, from a really climate perspective altogether, a global perspective, is going to be all the better for really all of us. Yes. David Culver, as always, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Julia. We're going to move on. Breaking news now from Barclays. CEO Jess Staley is stepping down after six years at the helm of the bank. Staley, the latest corporate figure, forced to resign in the aftermath of the Jeffrey Epstein sexual abuse scandal. Anna Stewart joins us on this story. Anna, what more do we know about the investigation and his decision to step down? So we know that this investigation uh, was launched last year. We knew then from Barclays. And it regards uh, the characterization of his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein and how he told Barclays Bank about it. And then what Barclays told the regulators, the FCA and the PRA. Now, was it fully, was it properly disclosed? That's really what is in focus here in this investigation. And this, of course, predates his time at Barclays. This is when he worked in JP Morgan. Uh, he was heading up the private bank and Epstein was a client. Now, on Friday night, Barclays Bank, the board, received the preliminary conclusions from the regulators in terms of this investigation. And what's so interesting, I think from their statement, what's really clear here is they're both surprised but also very supportive of the outgoing CEO. They say they are disappointed by the outcome. They say Staley has performed his role as a CEO with commitment and skill over the last six years. They also say there is no finding here that Staley saw or was aware of any of Epstein's alleged crimes, but he wants to contest the conclusions and therefore the board and he have decided that he must step down. Now, when we discovered about the investigation last year in February, he was asked in an earnings call about this relationship and I can bring you what he said back then. He said, Obviously, I thought I knew him well, and I didn't. And for sure, with hindsight of what we all know now, I deeply regret having had any relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. 
It's not the first run-in Staley has had with British financial regulators. Uh, he was fined $870,000 uh, regarding a whistleblower investigation uh, that he tried to identify a whistleblower, something he apologised for. Of course, this is a very different investigation, and we just don't know what these preliminary conclusions are. We've asked for comment, no comment at this stage from the FCA or the PRA, as the investigation is ongoing. As of today, since he has stepped down, uh, the former head of global markets, C.S. Venkat Krishnan, known as Venkat, he is taking over as CEO, subject to regulatory approval. And they will be paying out Staley's salary for 12 months because that is the notice that Barclays needed to give him, as well, of course, as a salary for a new CEO. Julia? Yes. Anna Stewart, thank you for bringing us that update there. Okay, Elon Musk says he's willing to donate $6 billion to the World Food Programme if... It can explain how the money would solve the problem of world hunger. The Tesla CEO was responding to a CNN interview with the head of the WFP, David Beasley, who said the money was urgently needed to save millions on the brink of starvation. And that the billionaires need to step up now on a one-time basis, $6 billion to help 42 million people that are literally going to die if we don't reach them. It's not complicated. And this is what's heartbreaking. I'm not asking them to do this every day, every week, every year. We have a one-time crisis, a perfect storm of conflict, climate change, and COVID. It's a one-time phenomenon. Christine Romans joins us on this story. Christine, I think we should be clear here. Elon was responding to the original headline on on CNN, which said that 2% of Elon's wealth could solve world hunger. But he actually said, help solve world hunger. So it's a technical point, but I do think it's a very important point and doesn't take away from, I think, the message that, that David was trying to present. I think you're right. He said, look, $6 billion could save 42 million lives. And that was the point uh, he was making there. And someone retweeted that CNN or tweeted that CNN story and headline. And uh, Elon Musk responded to that. He said, if WFP can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. And then he went on to say he would need open source accounting so the public sees precisely how the money is spent. So it's uh, sure I'll spend $6 billion if there's a big if there and a caveat. Look, let's talk about the the WFP. It won the Nobel Prize last year, right, for its work done in the pandemic, uh, helping people with food and hunger uh, during uh, during the pandemic. So it, got, it won the 2020 uh, Nobel Prize. And, and David Beasley has made that uh, call before of the nation's, of the world's rich people saying, you know, a one-time, you know, big dose of money from them, it would be less than 2% of Elon Musk's net worth. I mean, he made, on paper, $9.3 billion on Friday alone, right, when uh, when Tesla stock uh, was doing so well last week. So his point is that the rich can afford to reach out and help uh, Elon Musk saying, sure, I'll sell Tesla stock, but let me see the details. Yeah, something tells me he's not going to get the details on this. But I'm glad that we're having the discussion, that we're raising awareness of the millions of people that are struggling to eat and not taking away from the charitable giving that that many of these big billionaires do give. Um, It's a lot of money. I mean, you look at Afghanistan, half, I mean, half the people in Afghanistan are at risk of falling into, uh, into hunger right now, you know, starvation. Yeah. Like this is, this is a, a global moment here, I think is David, uh, David Beasley's uh, point here. And, you know, the five or six richest people in the world have a net worth that rivals the size of the G20 economies, all of yeah. them. I mean, think of that. It's just remarkable. Remarkable.
I'm glad we're having the discussion. Christine Romans in New York there. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Police in Tokyo have arrested a 24-year-old man suspected of attacking passengers on a train. Local media report he was brandishing a knife and started a fire in a carriage. Authorities say 17 people were injured in Sunday's attack. At least one person was stabbed and is in critical condition. British Transport Police say a number of people were hurt late Sunday when two trains collided in Salisbury, England. The incident happened at a Fisherton tunnel. One passenger said she believes the train she was on slipped off the rails and hit another train sitting stationary in the tunnel. Shanghai Disneyland has been closed for the next two days after someone with a confirmed case of COVID-19 visited the park. Tens of thousands of people were obliged to undergo coronavirus testing on Sunday night before they were allowed to leave the resort. Visitors are now required to self-isolate. Still to come here on First Move, Matt Damon on a mission, an exclusive interview with the actor about how clean water can help save lives. And on the front lines of climate change, camera reports from Senegal where floods are destroying homes and livelihoods. It's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. 466 million hours. That's the amount of time spent every single day, predominantly by women and children, walking to find water or a safe place to relieve themselves. It's something the Oscar-winning actor Matt Damon decided years ago to try and help change when he co-founded Water.org. He joined me along with Water.org CEO Gary White and longtime corporate partner AB InBev CEO Michelle Ducaris in an exclusive interview. Matt used to travel to far-flung places with his mother as a child, and I began by asking what he would have said if back then someone would have told him by 2021 he would have helped 38 million people access safe water. Here's what he said. I, I say, I hope you're telling me the truth. I hope. That, <laughs> um, and, then, and then I'd probably say, is that it? You know? <laughs> Because there, uh, there's a lot more to do, obviously. But, um, but things have gone as well for us at Water.org as we could have hoped. We're, this is what we dreamed about when we partnered um, back in 2009 and what we talked about. And um, so that, that part's really exciting. And, and sharing the story with, uh, with people about, about, as you say, it's about you know, the, the poorest people in the world. Uh, predominantly women really really taking control of their own lives and and all we do is 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 kind of nudge the market toward them and allow them to um, to do the rest and and solve their own problems and so that's a really wonderful story to tell because it's about these heroic uh, women kind of one by one doing this over and over and repaying these loans at over 99 percent I mean this is part of it Gary it's um, Water.org is a story of self-determination. It's about tackling gender inequality, as, as Matt said. 90% or predominantly women here are, are borrowing money. They're helping themselves get access to clean water, and it's a huge problem. I'm not sure people that are watching this understand the scale of the issue that we're talking about here. Yeah, it, it is huge scale. I mean, uh, more than 700 million people lack access to, to safe water and uh, more than double that don't have access to improved sanitation. Uh, but what that means is when you think about, you know, every day, every day when, when we wake up, we get water somewhere, right? And yeah. We go and turn the tap. But everybody in the world, when they woke up today, had to get water somewhere. And women spent 200 million hours today 
uh, just walking to get water, spending time waiting in line for water. So you can imagine what that can do to, to their families and to their productivity. And so what we really uh, help do by getting access to these small affordable loans so that people can get a water connection in their home is help them buy their time back. And I think that's what's really uh, key with the whole relationship uh, with Stella Artois uh, in doing what we're doing this fall. We'll come to this. I think we in the West, and you've said it, we get up in the morning, we get a drink of water, and it's, we don't consider it a luxury. It's something normal to us. It's a basic human right, quite right. frankly. Um, and you mentioned a statistic there that I want to repeat. In total, actually, it's 466 million hours a day that are spent predominantly by women walking to go and find water, trying to find a safe place to relieve themselves. And actually, if you can provide them with the ability to get access to water safely for themselves, you free up a mind-blowing amount of time. That's exactly right. And, and it's women and girls, and girls as well. Yeah. So, so the effect on girls is that it goes from, from their, their life is revolving around trying to get water to suddenly the water is available, so they're back there in school, and so it, and obviously the outcome is a lot different for their life if they're educated and they suddenly have the chance to dream and they can dream about, you know, a, you know, a life ahead of them the way we all get to do growing up uh, because this 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 need has been met. And so, I mean, so. the benefits to the communities too if That's you can exactly educate right. women and you can pull this together. Um, I watched a, uh, an interview that you did though with a small child, and actually what you asked her. And I'll vividly remember it, I think, for the rest of my life. You said, what are you going to do with the time? And she said, I'm just going to play. That, that was really, it was a, she was 13 and my oldest was 13 at the time. And so we, we were in Haiti. This is 10, 10 or so years ago. And, uh, and I asked her what she was going to do. And it was just, you know, she, I, I said, oh, you're going to have more time for homework now. You know, kind of joking <laughs> with her. And she, but she looked at me and she had that, she had such great kind of attitude. She goes, I don't need more time for homework. I'm, I'm the smartest kid in my class. <laughs> And she said it in that way where you're like, oh, you are the smartest kid in your class. And I was like, all right, well, hotshot, what are you going to do uh, with all this extra time? And she looked at me totally earnestly and she said, I'm going to play. And I mean, it buckled me, not in front of her, but, I, you know, that's what every kid should be thinking about. You walk away and cry after that moment, but you're also doing good, which is great. And Michelle, come in because you're part of this. And actually, we've sort of said it, it's the gift of giving time. And that's at the core of your latest ad campaign. And I know this has been a years-long partnership already, but explain what this holiday promo yeah, means. A great partnership for us is the right thing to do first. Right. We believe that's the right thing to do. For us, our business is very local. It's all about the communities, where we operate in, where we source our products, and where our consumers are. And when we saw water.org, how good this was, we thought that Stella could come and help. So for seven years now, we partner. It's always a very special part of our year and our planning to come together and think about how can we get this better. We've been in these seven years helping more than three million people now. And this year we have this Give the Gift of Time campaign. That's a special holidays campaign where you can buy Stella Artois or buy a Stella Artois chalice and help us in supporting water.org. And it's not the only thing you're going to do as well. I believe there's going to be um, water tanks in New York City with the QR code, and you can, modern technology, you can use the QR code to get more access too. Yeah, we thought that would be very important to raise the awareness yeah. and to bring people closer to the reality that we are talking about here. 
So we will have across New York this huge opportunity for people to visit this water tank where they will see a woman carrying the water. They will be able to see the difference between having water available for you here, as we all have, and what the women around the world need to do to get water for their families. You know, it's also important from a business perspective. I don't think we should be separating care for the planet in whatever form it is from, from profits. You know, my, my mother says to my father, you need to drink more water. And he says it's the best excuse he gets on a daily basis to, um, to drink beer, quite frankly. And the girls and the family will roll their eyes. But he has a great point because you know, without water, you don't have a business. So there's business in this. There's also giving back. And those two things should be intrinsically entwined. Yeah, that's perfect. We always say that no water, no beer is one of the four <laughs> ingredients that you have in beer. Beer is very natural. So no barley, no beer. So we need the water to grow the barley. And no water, no hops, no beer. So we really need to call the attention for how important it is to protect water and the water sources that we have why we need to support people in the local communities. This is very close to who we are and is what we want to do. Matt, business intrinsic to the relationship that you're building, to the money that you're raising, to the communities that you're accessing and you're building. Well, you can see why we love them as partners and, uh, <laughs> and why it's been, it's been so great for all of us for all these years. And they've really accelerated the work that we're doing. Um, and, 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 and with these different kind of, I mean, this year with this water tank installation, it's, it's so cool. It's like all these ways that they're, they're helping us spread this word. Um, again, because it's a story we, we really need to get out there because we believe in people. The more people hear this, the more that they want to become involved with it and, and help. People love stories that, uh, about positive change, about real impact. Um, and so that's what we're trying to, to, to make sure people understand that. And this, this holiday commercial this year, it, this idea that they came up with, which was so great for us, it's, 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 you know, give the gift of time, right? It's the best thing. It's what we're all thinking about in the holidays, certainly coming out of COVID where we all reassessed our, you know, it's it, this time with our families, time with our loved ones. Some, some of us were split up from our loved ones and grandparents were split up from grandchildren. And so this idea that, you know, giving, giving that gift of time together uh, is the most beautiful thing you can give somebody, and it's as easy as as uh, as, as giving some Stella to somebody, right? <laughs> or, or one of these beautiful chalices, right? So, right. So, um, or or your dad, you know, exactly. or your dad getting his your dad drinking his water, you know, your dad just water. <laughs> He's gonna kill me for that. Don't go anywhere. After the break, more from our exclusive interview on why climate change and the water crisis are inextricably linked. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and the COP26 Climate Summit is now well underway over in Glasgow. Moments ago, we heard from noted naturalist Sir David Attenborough, who laid out what is at stake, saying, quote, we are already in trouble. Even punchier, the UN Secretary General warned humanity is, quote, digging its own grave. Coming up very soon, US President Joe Biden is expected to speak and we will bring you that live the moment it begins. There's live pictures of him there, as you can see on your screen. Now, as the calls for action there grow louder, I asked Water.org CEO Gary White to explain why we cannot separate the water crisis they're trying to tackle from the broader efforts to address climate change. Even if someone has access to water right now in one of these, you know, urban slums or poor rural areas, it can be very tenuous. 
right, in terms of like what's happening with the weather there and what their water source is. So with climate, it is going to impact those who are the most vulnerable first. It's going to make it harder for those who don't have water to get access to water, and those who do will maybe backslide. And that's why, you know, I'll, I, I'll be at COP, and we'll be carrying the message of water. Uh, we'll be partnering on a session with Estelle Artois there to, to highlight water and why climate is water. It's, as we see, you know, in California, it's too little water. You know, in other places, it's floods and, and tsunamis. And that's the, the thing. We have to look at this as a water crisis and a climate crisis woven together. And we have to look at it from the perspective of the poorest among us and make sure that we're not just trying to, to you know, capture more carbon, but we're also looking at resilience and adaptation. And when we often use the phrase climate change, I'm not sure we actually understand the impact of the change. We're talking a lot about the mitigation efforts, but the change that we're seeing in our planet and our environment is crucial. And even just the statistics today, one in nine people lack access to safe water. 55% of people don't have access to safe sanitation. 55% of the world. Um, And that's only going to get worse. Well, that's the thing. You know, we're very happy with this over 3 million people we've reached through this partnership with the 38 million people that we've reached. But we don't want to see that go backwards, <laughs> right? We want to we want to build on that, and uh, and that's what um, you know. We know that the poorest of the poor will feel the effects of this first and worst. That we we know that will happen. So, so we we, we have to uh, you know work together to mitigate that. You know what's fascinating to me as well uh, for all the discussion, particularly that we're having here in the United States on infrastructure spending, and understand when you look. And the data is relatively limited, but it's less than 2% of all the money that is invested goes to water-related infrastructure. Why is that? Is it because we, we in the West, where we're investing the money, we don't see the problem because, as we've discussed, you have access to it? It's, it's not about a lack of care. It's understanding. It um, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, 8 trillion gallons of water a year are lost because of, you know, leaky pipes or, you know, through infrastructure. Think about the, the cost, the carbon cost of delivering that water, right? You know, you know, getting it, treating it, moving it, and then suddenly you just lose it, right? Is that, that's an absolute waste. Give and me that stat again. How eight trillion eight gallons trillion. of water, right? So that you could solve the problem, the problem twice the problem. over with, just with, with um, shoring, shoring that up, which is a big thing to do. But, 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 that, but, but you, that you need to be thinking that way in terms of kind of attacking this problem. I don't hear this being discussed enough. That's why we want to bring it to the fore, you know, uh, when we're in Glasgow, because it is, that that 8 trillion represents 25% of all the water that is sourced and treated. And so it's one thing to have a carbon footprint when you derive some economic value out of it. You know, you you drive to work in your car and you make money and you provide for your family. But when you have a carbon footprint that's completely has no economic value that leaks out unaccounted for, that's kind of some of the low-hanging fruit I think that we can we can be looking at and boost that infrastructure investment from 2% of infrastructure up higher because this has been overlooked for decades if not centuries. And I think going back to your original point I think it is that that we just it's so hard for us to relate to it right because we've never none of us in the West have ever been thirsty we don't know anybody who has we're all always within 20 feet of a, of a clean drink of water, you know, in your kitchen sink, in your bathroom, the water in your toilet is cleaner than most people have access to, the people that we're talking about. So, so it's trying to get people over that hurdle and trying to carry that message. Water is a source of life. It's also what you're talking about there is a source of sustainable growth. 
sustainable growth, and we talk about that a lot, now you're really getting to project-based ways of tackling this. What more do you need, guys? What, how can we help if businesses are watching this conversation, if consumers are watching this conversation? People are going to buy Stella Artois glasses that's already the heart of the conversation give the gift of time give the gift of time we shall what more what more can we do well i think you know the example that that you've set michelle with uh really leaning into this at at every level right and if more corporations were able to do that you know their leading voice on the, the water resilience coalition that we've we've helped put together uh focusing on sustainability focusing on those those individuals seeing their their needs and i think if, if every corporation was doing what Stella yeah. was doing, I think we could have the problem solved. Yeah. And I think that's a key message for you know, public and private partnerships to, to come together with organizations like ours. Because these are huge problems. I mean, it's, this is going to take more than a trillion dollars to solve the water and sanitation crisis. And it really is an all-hands-on-deck. It's ex- businesses, it's organizations like Water.org, it's government, it's you know, financial institutions all coming together to, to do this. This is like, it's, it should be an embarrassment for us as a planet, as a people, that, you know, so many of us still don't even have access to this first commodity, and that's water. And to your point, a trillion dollars is a drop in the ocean for all the money and the wealth creation that we've seen even absolutely over the last decade, let's be clear. There is the money there for this. You know, when you ask people for money and you ask them for the support, at the core of that needs to be trust, that they know that the money that they're giving is going to the right places, that the women that borrow this money are utilizing it, are allowed to utilize it in the way that they should and that these projects get finished. How do you promise and ensure people that are watching this that what is required gets done? I I think what makes this really deliver and what the promise is, is the promise of the women that we're trying to help, right? They are the ones who uh, want to improve their lives. They see the value of water, and that's why you know they, they know that there's not gonna be enough charity in the world to help everyone, so they step up and they say, I know I want this water connection, or I want this water storage tank, and I want it so badly, I'm gonna take out this loan to go do that. So this is like a demand-driven approach. And so we know, we verify, we can see those loans and go to the field and verify them that those improvements actually took place. We can verify that the loans are actually repaid so that that money's available for the next woman to get access to the loan. And to me, that's what's most powerful. This isn't a charity you know, solution of like we come and drill your well and walk away and say, good luck. It's like, what do you want? And how do we empower you to have you know, your own agency to get the water solution that you need? And that is what we see you know, now uh, more than uh, you know, almost 40 million times over. And self-determination, as you said earlier. But the the other piece, to just add on to that, um, because that really is at the heart of what we do and believe. Um, As you do that, and as these loans keep getting paid back and recirculate, you're driving down the cost, the philanthropic cost per person reached. So in the traditional well system that costs, say, $25 to get somebody clean water for life, you're getting somebody safe water for life for you know under five under and 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 dropping it just keeps dropping as these loans keep going out so so it's all it's not only a a a, a virtuous thing you're doing it's a, it's a, it's the smart way to do it yeah there's nothing charitable about this no and therein lies the key yeah. in seeing the the results of this work to me what strikes the most is the idea that we have the choice to help they have no choice 
Mm. And once we give the choice for them to have the water, they will pay back. They are proud of paying back because they are helping others. So we have the choice to help. The ultimate empowerment. Guys, thank you. And you can be part of helping solve the global water crisis. Visit water.org forward slash donate. I'm showing you the page there. Up next, far from the COP26 negotiations in Glasgow, Senegalese fishermen fight for their future on the absolute front lines of the climate crisis. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. Even as the world leaders debate solutions to address global warming at COP26 in Glasgow, the climate crisis is wreaking havoc on coastal communities all around the world. Rising sea levels triggering menacing storm surges and threatening livelihoods and homes in the so-called Venice of Africa. Fred Pleiken joins us now from Senegal. Very great to have you with us as always. The issue of water access has been an issue for Senegal and regional nations, let's be clear, for, for many years. Just explain what you're seeing there and what the communities are suffering. Well, look, uh, Julia, a lot of the dire projections that we're hearing from some of those leaders at, at COP26, especially as the uh, summit has opened today, a lot of those dire projections have already come true uh, here in Western Africa and specifically in this town <coughs> of San Luis, where I am right now. You can see behind me, there's actually some fishermen who are tending to their nets right now, but you can also probably see that the houses that they're standing in front of are ruins, are absolutely destroyed. And that's because the sea level here in San Luis has been rising for a very long time. It's a very low-lying area. And that's led to a lot of storm surges here, which is literally destroying a lot of these historic buildings on the front lines. And of course, also destroying the livelihoods and the homes of the people who are living inside them. Now, you have a lot of people actually who are still living inside those houses, even as they're being destroyed, even as they know the next storm surge could rip them away. But there's also thousands of others who have already been displaced, especially from the fishing community here. Let's have a look. The fishermen's lives have always been tough here in San Luis in northern Senegal, fighting for survival on the harsh Atlantic Ocean. Now, because of climate change, the sea that has always provided for their livelihood is destroying their existence. Sheikh Zar and his family live in what's left of their house, half destroyed by a storm surge, knowing full well the rest of the building could be washed away any time. We don't have anywhere to go, he says. If we had the means, we would move. Where we are living is not safe. We are powerless. Because of its geography, San Luis is known as the Venice of Africa, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, once the capital of Senegal, now facing attrition due to the global climate emergency as erosion takes its toll on the historic buildings and the people dwelling in them. Fishing is a profession that spans generations here in San Luis, but thousands of fishermen and their families have already been displaced by global warming as rising sea levels have destroyed many houses here on the coastline. There is nothing left of where fisherman Abdullah Touré's house once stood. He says many who lost their homes have become climate refugees. There are a lot of young people who have already fled to Spain because they are homeless, he says. They have lost their jobs. Many of them are going. 
Others have had to move to this tent camp miles away from the ocean, living in poverty with little hope for improvement. Rising sea levels are a threat to coastal areas around the world, already causing an increase in severe flash flooding and storm surges, like in the New York and New Jersey area after Hurricane Ida in September. The world needs to act fast or risk having to completely abandon some coastal regions in the future, especially in the U.S., says climate scientist Anders Lievermann. The entire east coast of the U.S., because of changes in the ocean currents, sea level is rising twice as fast at the east coast of the U.S. than globally. What is a dangerous projection for the world is already grim reality here in Senegal, where the ocean that has defined the lives in this community for so long is now drifting them into an uncertain future. And that future really is uncertain, Julia. It's really unclear whether or not this town is going to remain viable for people to live in here in the long run. I just want to take you and walk around real quick so you can see really the scale of the problem here. As you can see, all of the buildings here on the coastline have already been destroyed with still people living inside them. But you can also see behind me over there that there are a lot of fishing boats and that just shows how many people have already been affected here by rising sea levels caused by global warming. Um, the numbers that we got from the government here is that around 3,000 fishermen and their families have already been displaced, but also there are a lot who obviously become climate refugees who try to make their way to Europe. And from what you're hearing on the ground here, there's no official numbers, is that many of those who attempt that dangerous journey don't make it and die on the way, Julia. Yeah, what did Boris Johnson say? Well, one minute from midnight, certainly for these people, we're there and we've been there for a long while. Fred Blackton, thank you so much for bringing us the story from there in Senegal. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but when we come back, we'll take a trip to the World Travel Market Expo, where climate change is an unavoidable topic for debate. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are hitting fresh records on the first trading day of November, a critical week ahead with the Federal Reserve meeting, a U.S. jobs payrolls report and lots more Q3 earnings on tap too. And possibly, she says, an agreement in Washington on fiscal stimulus. I repeat, we'll see it when we believe it. Believe it when we see it. The S&P 500 coming off its best monthly gains of the year. Tech stocks were October's best performers, even as heavy hitters like Amazon and Apple warned of sales pressure ahead. Now, a mere 129-hour walk or a 38-hour bike ride from Glasgow, no planes allowed today, is London, where the global travel industry is convening for the annual world travel market. And that is where we find our Richard Quest. Richard, great to have you on the show. I jest, but I kind of mean it. Obviously, we want to be talking about recovery for the travel industry, but sustainable recovery, particularly in light of the discussions going on in Glasgow, another point entirely. Oh, absolutely. And they'll admit that here. The recovery, let's get the COVID business out of the way quickly. The recovery is happening where those markets are open faster than had been predicted. And most of the countries here are looking forward to a bumper 2022 and preparing for that. But they are aware, Julia, that the existential crisis is that as it relates to climate change. For instance, the Maldives tourism minister reminded me his country will be underwater if they don't sort something out. In the Gulf, they pointed out, they have a sustainability centre because if they don't manage to deal with it, then, of course, and also, Julia, people, tourists, visitors are demanding 
that these places operate in a more sustainable fashion. The difficulty, as you'll appreciate, is how do you come out of a structural crisis like COVID and then deal with the existential crisis like climate change? It's such a great point. And we spoke to the head of the IEA recently and he said 70% of the investment required for uh, the transition and improving and being more focused on renewable energies has to come from emerging markets at a time, as you quite rightly point out, where they're struggling to recover from COVID. Interesting that you spoke to the Maldives as well. What did they say about the fact that in many respects are at the mercy of bigger nations, the United States, China, India, to make the changes required in order to protect the environment? There's not that much they can do individually. Look, I've spoken to numerous ministers from different parts of the world. I'm about to speak to the Egyptian minister. They all say the same thing. We know we've got to do it. Now, some will say, where's the money going to come to do it? Others will say it's a relationship of ingenuity, innovation and technology. Nobody really wants to grasp the nettle that ultimately the trillions that Prince Charles talked about over the weekend at the G20, the trillions of dollars have to come from somewhere. And at the moment, this is an industry that is recovering, that is simply trying to get people to have confidence to go back on the road and then they will deal with it. My guess is they will deal with it when they have to. Yeah, so Prince Charles's warlike footing, the travel industry has already been on warlike footing for recovery throughout COVID-19. Yeah, crisis after crisis. Richard, great to have you with us. We look forward to seeing what comes of the world market. Thank you for that. And for more on the world travel market, tune in to Quest Means Business, 3 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. London. Now, the COP26 climate meeting got underway a short time ago in Glasgow. For the next two weeks, world leaders are working to solve the problem of global warming. So far, we've heard how urgent the crisis is and how important it is for leaders to come together and reduce greenhouse gases. U.S. President Joe Biden is expected to speak soon, and we will bring you that and all the headlines from the upcoming meeting throughout programming today here on CNN. For now, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.